0: This morning we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to begin to find your way there, Isaiah chapter 9. Over the last few weeks of Advent, we've looked at a variety of different things, Uh, the coming glory, the coming justice, this idea that in, in the coming of Jesus, we see this cosmic change affected. We see... Uh, that in God come in flesh, that everything is changed, that everything is impacted. And so we've been looking at it primarily through Isaiah. And so we recognize that in this snapshot of Isaiah, we also have the anticipation of what it looks like for us to see Christ come again. So in the anticipation, in the snapshot we see in Isaiah, we too wait to see the final fulfillment of Isaiah of what Isaiah declares to see Jesus come again for us. Can I get somebody to flip the lights on? In Isaiah chapter nine, it begins to kind of tell us this story of this king named Ahaz who has this particular penchant for making bad decisions that are going to have worse consequence. And so that's that's kind of what we're going to see unfold. But there's this. The sense of expectation and excitement that that things aren't always going to be the way they are. And I I don't know what is kind of bred in your heart around Christmas time. I know for a long time for me, it was just the, the idea and the anticipation that the box under the tree for me was larger or they were more numerous then the box under the tree for my brother. And he's older than I am. And so as he got older, his gifts got smaller. But I swear my parents are spending more money on him. I haven't uh, sought out to prove this. It's just a hunch I have. But it's always this, this kind of idea and expectation of looking underneath there. And when mom's out of the room, kind of peeling the wrapping paper back a little bit. And be like, oh my gosh, I wonder if I can take it out and play with it. Just for a little while and then put it back up. And, and I was not very good at re-wrapping. So I only did that one time. But there's always this kind of this anticipation, and then something changed in me, and I begin to kind of get this same expectation and the same excitement of buying things for other people. Now, Valerie will tell you, and, and if you've received a gift from me, you'll likely kind of give testimony the same thing, that my tendency is to give gifts of utility, And so you describe to me some issue you have. I'm like, what you need is a wrench. And so here you go. Here's this wrench. And you describe another problem. Like here's here's a pair of socks. You're always saying your your toes are cold. And so here's this wonderful pair of socks. And they're gonna cure your cold feet. And you're like, "Uh, thanks. Merry Christmas. Like you're welcome. Merry Christmas. Oh my goodness. But but one time, well a couple times. But one time in particular. Everything just kind of clicked for me. Like, I finally knew the perfect gift. To buy. It's like the heavens parted. And, and then I had this message written in the sky. I was like I, I know. And it's it's not a gift of utility. It's just, it's the most amazing gift. In fact, all other gifts over the history of mankind are gonna be measured from this gift. Years from now, my great-great-grandchildren, you'd be like, if you heard the story of great-great-grandpappy? That's what they're gonna call me. And if you heard the story of, of how he bought the gift, it's like the gift, and like yes, the gift. And like, I have heard that story. My wife will never have a gift that great. And they'll say, yes, neither will mine. That's how great this gift was going to be. I just knew it. I just knew it was a gift. For whatever reason, I thought this gift came from Bath and Body Works. And so I went there. And as I'm in Bath and Body Works, she's kind of overwhelmed. The kind of like sensory invasion of smell. I'm just like, I have no idea what to get. Everything smells and it all smells different. And so I turned to the shopkeeper and I said, Hey, look, I know this is the gift, but I'm not certain of the smell. And so she said, buy something you like to smell. And buy something that you like to smell because you're going to give it to the person. You're going to want to smell it on them. I said, this is genius. (laughs) (coughs) This is fantastic. And so I began to go around like, melon. Like, I like it, but only in the summertime, and peppermint, I like it, but only when I've got bad breath, and so I began to smell all of these various things, and then I landed on the most exquisite fragrance ever enjoyed by any man anywhere, and so I bought everything they (laughs) have in that fragrance, and I just loaded it up. I mean, I'm talking like flatbed truck full of this stuff, and so we're loading it all into the the deal, and I'm just resting in the security of how great and amazing this purchase is, just, like you know, chest buffed out. I mean, just, I mean, just knew I had the gift. A couple weeks later, I'm at my now uh, in-law's house. And I'm just, just kind of basking in the glory of this gift and just how amazing it is. And, and my mother-in-law begins to talk about Bath and Body Works being a really great gift idea. I'm like, I go in the bathroom and I'm like dancing and like it was just amazing. Then I fell and that was awkward. But and so I came back out and and she says, "Oh man!" And they've got these smells. I'm like, "Oh, I didn't get that one." And she's like, "And they got these smells." She's like, "But then they've got this one particular fragrance. It's the one I bought." And so I'm really anxious. She says, "And it it smells like garbage." And so I'm trying to rationalize this. Is it like this sweet, pungent smell of rotting fruit that's really good but really disgusting at the same time? Like, good garbage smell? Like, rich people garbage smell? And she said, I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to wear this. So I'm thinking of all the money I've spent buying effectively trash juice for my uh, girlfriend to adorn herself with. Man, I can tell you that the anticipation of something rarely lives up to the reality of what it is. Whether it's some gift that you buy and you have this sense of how excited the person is going to be when they open it, or something you've wanted. Some, uh, you want to be on the other side of something. And you, you finally get to the other side of it, and the reality of something rarely lives up to the anticipation of something. But Man, I've got great news for you. The expectation of the coming of the Messiah far surpasses any sense of expectation in your heart. The reality far outweighs any sense of greatness that you might engender and create in your mind. The most amazing, fantastic picture that you might ever be able to create is going to pale in comparison to the reality of what it is when our Lord Jesus pulls apart the sky and he descends with a shout. And that's the reality that Isaiah painted For the people of Judah back in the the 8th century BC. So Isaiah has been working with this kind of no talent hack king, Ahaz, and he's been trying to convince Ahaz that allying himself with the Assyrians is just a bad way to handle conflict. And so he's been telling him, look, you don't want to ally yourself with the Assyrians. What you need is to be dependent upon God. God will deliver us. But Ahaz kind of kicks off the guidance and the wisdom from the prophet of the Lord, and he seeks to ally himself with the Assyrians anyway. And so Isaiah goes through and he begins to describe all the various things that are going to happen because of this colossally bad decision. So he describes it as walking in darkness or walking in gloom. And this is what is coming. This is going to be the reality. But even though he's kind of given this bleak picture of what they're what their soon coming present is going to be, he holds out a further picture of what it looks like for a Savior to show up on the far side of disobedience. So he begins to lay these things out in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And look at what he says. He says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In essence, he's saying, look, it's going to be terrible, it's going to be awful and miserable that there is coming a time that there will be no more anguish, that there will be no more gloom. He says, in the former time, uh, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So he looks around and he says, you know, Israel to the north and you know your land. There is coming a time where you will face oppression. There is coming a time ultimately where you'll be removed from the land. But this God will restore. This God will bring his goodness. This God will bring his grace. This God will bring himself into the middle of your destruction. So look what he writes in verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we begin to understand, he's kind of painting this picture, and he said, you remember uh, this idea that I'm engendering in you of, of bleakness, of darkness, of gloom. He says, on you and on this people, light is going to shine, and it is going to be glorious, and you're going to come out of darkness. So they begin to wonder, much like you and I would, what does it look like for light to show up here? And, and, and how is that process going to be affected? In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 29, we read this of God. He says, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. John wrote in 1 John 1.5, he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is beginning to clue into them and give them this picture that their, their situation is going to be positively effective. It's going to be changed. Not through military might, but through his presence, through him showing up and radically altering their present and radically altering their future. So he begins to describe kind of what it's going to be like to be on the other side of sadness, to be on the other side of oppression. So in verse 3, he describes it with two metaphors. He says, you've multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So he says, you remember this feeling you get at the end of a harvest when you kind of gather everything up together? And you're just like, man, we killed it. This is an amazing harvest. All of our hard work has paid off. And we see all of these things here before us. And so they knew that. They understood what that was like. They understood that situation. He said, This is what this is gonna be like. So then he turns and he says, Or imagine after a battle, and so after you vanquish the enemy and you begin to go through and say, Man, they had some really good stuff. And so they had some gold and they had some chariots and they had some horses and some livestock. He said, it's going to pale in comparison to that. So the greatest bumper crop you've ever brought in, the most amazing army with with wealth and opulence you've ever vanquished, and they left all of their things and you've collected them all, it's going to be so much better than that. And he's going to show them how. So the first thing he does, he says, I'm going to remove your burden. I'm going to remove your oppression. Look at verse 4. He says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, Midian asks us to remember a story that maybe some of you aren't all that familiar with. In Judges chapter 6 and kind of following, we read the account of a guy named Gideon. And Gideon commanded a tremendous force of 32,000 men. And there was an army of the Midianites coming in and they were going to oppress Israel. So the guy goes to Gideon and he says, look, I want you to go out and I want you to encounter this encroaching force. Gideon says, no problem. I got 32,000 of my homies. We're going to go out. We're going to bring the pain. God says, it's too many. So he begins to systematically remove and pare down Gideon's forces. So he sends uh, 10,000 away. He sends 20,000 away. And so he's just kind of paring them down until Gideon is left with him and 299 of his closest friends. He had 32,000 men, an army armed to the teeth. And he's left with 300. God wanted to show Gideon, it is not by your might. It is not by your sword. It is not by sheer intimidation of numbers. It is by my hand. Israel will be delivered. And reading that story, recognize that God is the deliverer. He sends the Midianites into peril. They are panic, and many of them turn on themselves. So what we read here in verse four is God is going to be their deliverer. It's not the Assyrians that Ahaz seeks to ally himself with. It's not some brave and bold strategy that he develops God will be their deliverer. Can I tell you today that God desires to be your deliverer. He desires to come in and to radically change and transform you. To come into the midst of your turmoil. To come into the midst of your sadness. To come into the midst of your family strife. He desires to be Lord over your life. And he desires to bring change into your life. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, for every boot... Of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God says in verse 4, I'm going to end all oppression. And in verse 5, he takes the idea that these boots have trampled the ground, boots worn by soldiers, and then their clothing that is covered in blood from war. And so what he does is he figures this fire, and he says all these things are going to be thrown into the fire because there's no more use for them. There is no purpose for them because when this Savior shows up, he will bring such incredible peace that it will be peace across the entire world. This is what he's going to do. Can I tell you that the the Savior... That this long-awaited one that Isaiah describes to King Ahaz, he delights to come into your life too and to bring peace that you're unable to comprehend. He delights to do it for them, and he delights to do it for you today. But he's going to do it in the most remarkable of ways. You get to verse 6, and Ahaz had to have been thinking that there's an army out there greater than the Assyrians that God is going to bring earthquakes. That He's going to bring uh, fire and hailstone from the sky. That He's going to obliterate their army, the armies of their enemies, by some amazing display of heavenly glory. But He does it in the most unconventional, most unlikely way possible. Look at verse six. He says, "For unto us is born a child. To us a son is given." God corrects all oppression. He brings all peace. He brings an end to every gloom and darkness through the giving of a son, through the birth of a child. This had to be perplexing. This had to be confusing for Ahaz to think, how is he going to bring this all about? How is a child going to accomplish all of this? So what Isaiah does is he begins to describe the peculiar nature of this child to give an indication that he is uh, remarkably different from any child that's ever been born and that ever would be born. He says the government shall be upon his shoulder, giving us the indication that every governmental decision is going to be his responsibility, that all men and all women will look to him and take their lead from him, that he will be the supreme ruler and authority. Then he says, and his name shall be called. Now, naming in this day was so much more important than in our day. Now, you can badly scar a child if you give them an awkward name that no one can pronounce. Uh, But in this day, the name attributed something to their character. So it's so much more important than just naming a boy Sue. And so what he does in this, look what he says. He says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor giving us the indication that this son who would be born will be the very embodiment of wisdom, that everything ever worth knowing will be known by him, that it will be perfectly fair, that he will know everything, and that every decision he makes will be perfect, right, and true. He will be the wonderful counselor, so this might have engendered, and has in his mind, Solomon. He said, Solomon's the wisest man who's ever lived. But look what he does next. He begins to give him the indication that it is no man who would be born. He says he's a wonderful counselor. And then he says he is mighty God. Make no mistake. When Isaiah gives these words... He's not thinking of the birth of a mortal man. He is describing God come in flesh. He is describing the Messiah. He says he's going to be mighty God. He's going to have the power and dominion, the omnipotence. He is all-powerful. He is very God of very God. He says he's going to be an everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of peace. This God is going to be one that you might know personally. This God is going to be a one who brings and affects peace. He's going to radically change the landscape of humanity. He's going to radically change the landscape and the accessibility of eternity. So verse 7 he says, And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Christ's coming in the nativity was the beginning And from that moment, the word of Jesus continues to spread and have effect, both in our hearts and the hearts of those who do not yet claim Christ is Lord. And this is what he's giving us a picture of. There is no end to the expansion of his kingdom. There might have been a hope in Ahaz's heart that he might reestablish the old boundaries of David. But never in his wildest dreams would he have ever thought that his kingdom would have no end, that he have thought that there would be this ever-increasing ever expansiveness of his kingdom. But this is what Isaiah describes. He says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, with two things, he says, "It's with justice and righteousness. Our God came and he establishes justice and and righteousness, and he does it through the birth of his son. Look what he says. He says he establishes it from this time forth and forevermore. The amazing thing we read in this passage is this isn't accomplished through getting Ahaz to buy in, through getting other worldly leaders to buy in. The wrap-up of this says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes this. God, through his great zeal and desire to see his glory come to reside among humankind, in your heart and in my heart made these things to be a reality. Maybe Christmas for you is recognizing this all-too-common nativity scene. So you've got a, a young mother and a first-time dad. You've got some shepherds coming in. You have the tale of these, of these kings from the east who will arrive two years later. And so you see this, but your idea of Jesus, it's hard for you to fathom and to understand a Jesus who rules and reigns and does so eternally in perfect justice and righteousness. Maybe the reason that you struggle with this is because today you would say that, Matt, I am so burdened and overcome. God wants nothing to do with me. My life and and the mistakes I make are really all there is to me. Maybe on the other side, you say, my life and the successes I have made of it are all I have, and I pride myself in them. Can I tell you, overcome and burdened, overwrought with pride, Jesus comes to you both. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, starting in verse 13, he says, He has delivered us, speaking of God, from the domain of darkness. Whether you recognize it or not, all of humanity dwells in darkness prior to the coming and receiving of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. To believe that you can get to God or make it through life by goodness or by being Just long-suffering and enduring pain and punishment. It's contrary to what Scripture says. God would have you to know his great love for you. That he extends to you the possibility of coming out from under the yoke and the oppression of sin with the promise of sure death and separation from God for all eternity in hell. So he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Look what he's done. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, this son who is born, this child who is given, this one that the government sits upon his shoulder, this one who is the everlasting father and the prince of peace. He bids you come to receive forgiveness. Come and be united with him. Come and exit from darkness and enter into the kingdom of his son. Because this is what he says in verse 14. That it is in Jesus Christ we have redemption. And redemption is the forgiveness of sins. For over 800 years from the days of Isaiah to the birth of Jesus, humanity awaited its Messiah. It awaited a Savior. And in the birth of Jesus, we see that God, wrapped in flesh, came and he dwelt among humanity... In at the height of justice and righteousness, being himself sinless, Jesus willingly submitted himself to the point of death. And scripture tells us this, even death on a cross. He was beaten, he was mocked, but he did so willingly for you. And this God who was wrapped in flesh, who was beaten and who suffered and died from you, for you, The same God, he overcame sin and death. And he was raised three days later. And he rules and reigns even today at the right hand of the Father. And he desires for you to come and to know him. To confess your sin before him. And to ask him to rule and to reign in your heart. That you might be to him a loyal subject. This is what Advent waits for the Jesus who came and what we look for, the Jesus who's coming still. There comes a day, friend, that Jesus will come back and he will bring the rule and reign of heaven to earth and he'll put an end to all tears, he'll put an end to all sorrow, he'll put an end to all darkness and his light will reign forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the goodness of your son, Jesus. The one who rules, the one who reigns. Father, I pray for those in this room this morning, those who are hurting and suffering, that in Jesus they would find peace, that they would see him as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. They would cry out to him for forgiveness. And they would be united to you through him forever. Father, I pray for the Christian in this place that's just discouraged, they're overcome. God, that you would give them strength and courage today. That by the power of your spirit at work in their lives, they would find encouragement and joy. God, we just thank you for an opportunity to worship your son. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful to you in all things. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.